This past summer, we traveled to Israel. Most of us came back pretty much the way we left. Some who had experiences there that, uh, that they got through with incredible grace and strength and courage. Um, it was a wonderful time of journeying together, 72 members of KI traveling together. And on that trip, we had lots of opportunities for conversation, the kinds of conversations that don't often happen uh, when we're just kind of hanging out at Oneg here at KI or uh, picking up our kids downstairs at the JEC. And one of those conversations uh, was with the mother of a teenage daughter. And she was speaking with a leader of our congregation, and she said, you know, I, I just wish I could get my daughter to synagogue, but she won't come because she doesn't believe in God. And so this leader in our community said to her, well, but being part of a Reconstructionist synagogue and coming to a Reconstructionist synagogue isn't primarily about one's theology, isn't primarily about God. There are many, many different kinds of people in our con congregation, in our community, and many of them don't necessarily have a God concept, a God belief at the center of their Jewish experience. And it's perfectly, wonderfully fine to come to services, to be with your community, and not because you're coming to express a relationship to God. And this mom started to cry on the bus, and she said, how I wish someone had said that out loud when my daughter was younger. Because she's convinced that she doesn't belong at synagogue, and that it has to all be about a belief system, or she can't come, and she shouldn't come, and she's an imposter that it would have been a great relief for this mom to have her daughter hear that in a synagogue setting from somebody in leadership. Another member of our community <coughs> said that his son um, was supposed to be choosing a bar mitzvah date, and the son had recently told his mom and dad that he was not gonna have a bar mitzvah, so they didn't need to pick a date. So the family said, what are you talking about you're not gonna have a bar mitzvah? Why aren't you gonna have a bar mitzvah? And he said, well, because I don't believe in God. So why would I have a bar mitzvah? I don't believe any of that stuff. And so I don't want to stand on the bima and hold a Torah and, and stand for something that I don't believe. So I'm not having a bar mitzvah. So the parents said, well, um, before you make that kind of a decision, you need to have a conversation with one of the rabbis. So they brought their son to see me. And we started chatting and visiting a little bit, and then I got down to the question, and I said, so what's, what's up with the bar mitzvah? No bar mitzvah? <laughs> and he said, well, no, I don't want to have a bar mitzvah. And I said, well, how come? And he said, well, because I don't believe this stuff that we say in our tradition, and I'm not going to hold the Torah up there and say things I don't believe. And I said, well, like, what, what is it that, that would be hard for you to do? He goes, like, I don't believe the world was created in seven days. And I said, I don't either. <laughs> he said, well, I believe it was the Big Bang that actually caused all of this to exist. I said, me too. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, I don't believe that God wrote the Torah and gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I said, me neither. <laughs> and he said, well, I think the Torah actually was written by people. And I said, me too. <laughs> so we spent the next bit 
talking about what it is that we think we think about Judaism and isn't necessarily even what Jews who have a deep relationship to our texts and our tradition of philosophy and theology um, and action and how to behave in the world, that, that they don't necessarily think these things either. And that was a huge moment for him of having to try to figure out, so what might it mean? What, if I didn't believe any of that, then what the heck was I talking about when I'm up here talking about God? And so we had a very interesting conversation about that. Bring your children to me if you want to know more. Um, lots of bar mitzvah families have had a very similar version of this story where the kids say, I don't believe it. And lots of parents come to me and say, you know, either my partner or my children, my teenagers, my young adult children won't come to synagogue because they don't believe in God. So as I was thinking about these conversations, I was reading, as I want to do, um, what my daughter calls my nerd magazines. So I was reading Psychology Today, and in there was an article called The Atheist at the Breakfast Table, and it was an article about how atheists and agnostics are joining synagogues and churches in record numbers. Avowed atheists, avowed agnostics are joining religious communities in record numbers. And then I heard a talk by Alain de Patton. Breton, he is a um, philosopher, if you will. He lives in the UK. And he said, and he was raised uh, partly in Switzerland, partly in the UK. And he wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. And he said, religion is too good. There's too much good about it to leave it to the religious people. <laughs> He said, because we really need a lot of what religion has, what we don't need, what we, it has a lot to offer, what we don't need is the doctrine. That's what our kids are telling us. I don't believe the doctrine. He said, you know, we're supposed to just understand in a liberal, secular, intellectual, modern civilization how to do life. We're supposed to just know that. He said the modern secular education system is based on the idea that life is essentially a kind of fairly easy process to get through. So you need to teach people certain skills for the modern economy, like accountancy and microbiology and all of this sort of stuff. But what you don't need to teach them is how to live, because how to live is fairly obvious. How to live is fairly obvious. All you need to do is separate yourself from your parents, bring up some children, maybe find a job you like, deal with mortality, all of those really easy things, and then confront your own death, and it's all just really simple. You don't need guidance. So you're supposed to know this stuff, he says, and my question is how? I don't know this stuff. And the fascinating starting point of religions, all religions, is they start from the idea that we don't know how to live. And so they need to teach us wisdom. That we don't live knowing how to do all of this stuff. And that religious traditions, wisdom traditions, are filled with really, really important insights into how to do life. What religions do, he says, which is rather interesting, 
is they recognize that we need to have constant public reminders of all this stuff about being good and kind that all of us probably sign up to in theory but forget about in practice. This is a real contrast to the secular world, which basically says public space must be neutral and there must be no messages reaching people because that might be an infringement on freedom. The problem, he goes on to explain, as we all know, is that the public space is not free from messages. The public space, the secular space that we all walk through all the time is not empty of messages. We get lots of messages about how we're supposed to look, about how much money we're supposed to make and what you're supposed to drive if you make a lot of it, how thin you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to consume, what your partner ideally should look like. We get lots of messages about what makes us valuable. And having a nine-year-old in my house, I see what the results of some of those messages are when I catch her in the mirror already at nine with the She's getting lots of messages about how she's supposed to be in the world and what's going to make her um, valuable. The thing is, we need other kinds of messages. That's what he's saying. We need to be exposed to the messages of wisdom, traditions, and we need to be exposed uh, to those, all of us sometimes at the same time, and have practices that accompany those ideas. And that's what religions do. They arrange calendars, he says. It's a way of making sure that across the year you'll bump into certain very important ideas. And that in the secular world we think, well, if it's really important, I'll just come across it. Nonsense, says the religious worldview. We need calendars. We need to structure time. And we need to synchronize encounters. You are right now partaking and participating in a synchronized encounter <laughs> of Judaism. A synchronized encounter with saying, I'm sorry. Atoning, saying out loud the ways that we have made mistakes. And de Patton, the avowed atheist, says about the Day of Atonement, it's a fascinating moment in the calendar in Judaism where people essentially say sorry to each other. And they say sorry on this one day and you're given license, encouragement, structure to do something which be, would be mightily hard if you were left to do it on your own, like saying sorry. It's much easier to say sorry if everybody is doing it on, on a particular day, because th then there's a sort of cycle of mutual apology and forgiveness, which makes the whole thing much more normal. He says that we're suspicious in the secular world of ritual. The idea is that you should do all of this on your own in private. And I'm coming around to the view, he says, that that's nice in theory, but the problem is we'll never get round to it. It's nice in theory to have an idea about being a person who says I'm sorry and owns the ways that I've made mistakes and have done wrong. There's one relationship I'm working hard to try to really communicate that, that I'm sorry. I made a mistake and I'm sorry. And I'm hoping that this time of year gives that one last push to really have that be heard in a different way by this person. Because that's what Yom Kippur does. It puts us in a synchronized encounter, in a position of readiness to ask and grant one another forgiveness. With or without a God concept, our religious tradition has much to teach us. One of the most compelling pieces of liturgy for these days of these high holy days of 
celebrating the new year and the Day of Atonement, Unatana Tokif and Berosh Hashanah. A prayer that says that we don't know what's going to happen in the coming year. And traditionally, the understanding was that on this day it was sealed, the decision was sealed what would happen to us in the next year. That is not Reconstructionist theology. That is not our understanding of what happens on this day at all. Does it still have meaning for us? Absolutely. I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't think so. One of the lines from that liturgy is an incredibly powerful teaching. Uteshuva, utefila, utsedaka, ma'avirin et roa hagazera. That tefila, teshuva, and sedaka, that these practices of of repentance and prayer and acts of righteousness, that they cancel out. What's usually said is that it cancels out the evil decree. That's not what the Hebrew says, right, Avi? The Hebrew says what's canceled out, that those three things, ma'avirin, what do they kind of X out? Roa hagazera, the evil of the decree. We can totally affirm as human beings that part hasn't changed since this liturgy was written in the Middle Ages. What hasn't changed is that we don't know what's coming. And we are frail and fragile and mortal and limited. We can't change that gazera. We can't change that decree. That's just the nature of what it means to be human. But we can impact how evil that feels. We can change how terrible it is for us when terrible things happen. When we do teshuva, when we really return and repent and repair our relationships, then we're part of a strong network of healthy relationships. And anyone in this room who's known tragedy and devastation knows that is the only thing on many days that gets us through or the people who love us, those deep connections of people who see us for our true selves and love us anyway. Teshuvah, coming together, strengthening our relationships, acknowledging that we're flawed, acknowledging the ways that we're not perfect. And tefillah, what is tefillah? What is prayer if there's no God concept at the center? Tefillah comes from the verb, I mean, in Hebrew, it comes from lehit palel, which is a reflexive verb, which has meant in the past to judge oneself. Lehit palel, to judge oneself. In the words of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, to deliver an opinion about oneself. It denotes stepping out of active life in order to gain a true judgment about oneself. That doesn't sound to me very much about God. Lehit palel. It's something we do to ourselves. We judge ourselves. We take the time to, to take collections of our people's understanding about what it is we want and need and should be about. Generations are represented in this book. That's why it's so heavy for you to pick up. We keep adding. We don't do a very good job of cutting things out. Can we judge ourselves by those standards, by what we lift up to be our values and morals and ethics? And how do we fare when we judge ourselves by those standards? 
But some people argue, it's a beautiful teaching, but some people argue that tefillah can come from nafal, to fall. What would it mean to just let ourselves fall? To fall, you ever done a trust, trust ex exercise with a team? What, what, what's the biggest one that people resist, right? What's the biggest one? They're gonna stand behind you and you're just gonna lean over backwards and fall. Because that takes an incredible amount of trust in a place of vulnerability to fall into someone else's arms. To trust that they will be there, to trust that they will catch us. Tefillah, can we be about learning to fall into each other, into a context bigger than ourselves, into community? Tzedakah. This is not charity. The closest word for charity we have in Hebrew is chesed, acts of loving kindness that you give because it feels good and you want to and you feel moved to. Charity comes from caritas, a Latin word. What tzedakah has nothing to do with that. We know that. Tzedakah means justice, righteousness. It means there's not an option. What if we really lived our lives as if we understood there's not an option here? We must act. In our community, 31,000 pounds of food, y'all. That's action. 32 pounds of food, Rachel Jeffer wants us, of course, to have this year. 32 tons of food to feed the food insecure in our community. That it's not optional for us to act locally here in our community and globally. Take information from our community table about Jewish World Watch marching and walking and doing whatever we can to end the genocide happening in this world. We as a people know a lot about that. Tzedakah. Tefillah, teshuvah, tzedakah. These things can impact our experience of the decree that all human beings live under. The decree that we're finite. The decree that we will suffer and lose. The challenge is to make these high holy days something that will change us. I'm going to close with the words of Rabbi Stuart Weinblatt. Here in the synagogue, we can, as a community, express our moral outrage at the complicity of the world in the shedding of innocent lives. Here we can condemn the carnage that is going on and see the parallels to the Jewish experience throughout the millennia and understand the Jewish imperative to act. We come together as a synagogue to understand how the calling of our tradition, our prophets and sages applies to the realities of today. Sometimes what we are searching for and how to carry on the search seems unclear, but our common quest brings us together. The idea of coming together in our search reminds me of the Helm story about the man who was looking for a purse that he lost. A friend offered to help him and asked him where he lost it. He said he lost it in the field. So if you lost your wallet in the field, then why are you looking for it over here by the barn? The man replied, because over here by the barn, the light is better. Here in the synagogue, we can search somewhat better, says Rabbi Weinblatt, because we have more light when we search together in the company of others and in the light of our ancient and noble heritage. Here, we find a community of seekers with whom we can share our joys 
and our sorrows. I wish you all and the atheists and what I like to call enchanted agnostics in your life, um, wish them all a Shana Tova and encourage them uh, to read from our tradition, to come and be part of community uh, and stress that it is about addressing how we need to be different ourselves so that we can create a different society and someday, ultimately, the messianic age, a completely different whole world at peace. I wish you good job.